Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. Well, this morning, Buster is away in North Africa. He's there ministering to a group of missionaries. We're glad to share him with the church worldwide. I know that many of you are probably disappointed when you walked in and saw that he wasn't preaching. Believe me, no one wishes he were here more than I do. So, um, anytime I'm asked to do this, I always feel a deep sense of inadequacy and unworthiness. So, as we begin, I'd like to ask the Lord for his grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you promise it's living It's alive, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce our hearts. So this morning we pray that you would inscribe upon our hearts the depth and the extent of your love, and that we might come away uh, motivated to love you in return. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Now, I believe that with all my heart, but my own experience is that some Scripture is more inspiring than others. And this morning, we come to what I think is one of the most profitable passages in all the Bible, certainly one of the most exhilarating. J.I. Packer says that Paul's letter to Rome is the high peak of Scripture, And if Packer's right, which I think he is, then Romans 8 is the Mount Everest of this book. Here in Romans 8, Paul has gathered together all the themes and the strands of thought he's developed through eight chapters, and we come to the climax of his doctrinal arguments in verse 30. So after expounding all these deep theological truths, Paul comes to the close of the section and he steps back in verse 31 and asks this question. What shall we say to these things? You see, Paul's provided a comprehensive explanation of what the Christian faith means, what it is. But it's just not enough to know the answers to the big theological questions that begin with what. That kind of knowledge is not of much value unless it helps us answer the how questions. How does this work out in our own life? Sinclair Ferguson makes this point in his book on Romans 8. He quotes John Owen, who called this the difference between the knowledge of the truth and the knowledge of the power of the truth. Here we go. You see, we can possess factual knowledge about the character of God and yet lack confidence in His personal protection. I think that's a poignant statement there. I'm not here today just to give more factual knowledge about the character of God. I don't think that's enough. It's not just important what you know, but how you apply what you know. So Paul's main point in this passage is that the Christian is totally secure. But Sinclair Ferguson pointedly asked this question, What does that mean to me when I feel like all hell is breaking loose in an assault on my soul? Paul wants us to understand our absolute security as children of God, but he wants, it to, he wants us to know it in our experience, not just in our mind. So Paul's ultimate goal in this passage is to provide the Christian with massive security for merciful service, even in the midst of many sufferings. Paul asks five questions here in these nine verses, and the answers provide the foundation for our security as God's children. 
These are rhetorical questions, which means that Paul doesn't really give an answer. He expects you to know it because it's so obvious. He begins by asking, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's making the point that God is our sovereign protector. Therefore, no opposition can finally crush us. The question begins with an if, but it's not an if of uncertainty. It means since, since God is for us. The key to grasping what Paul's trying to communicate here is the subject of the question. God is for us. The focus of this entire section, indeed, is on the person of God more than what he accomplishes or does for us. It's a subtle difference, but the emphasis is important. God is for us. Who is this God? Well, this is the God of the Bible, the God who revealed himself to Abraham as God Almighty, the omnipotent, all-powerful one who yet condescends to enter into a relationship called a covenant with Abraham. God extends that covenant relationship under Moses and formalizes his covenant, and he reveals himself in Exodus 34 as the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In Isaiah chapter 40, he reveals himself as God the creator who's made all things and calls them by name. He says, the nations are as nothing before me. And yet this creator God is still active in the affairs of man. In Isaiah 46, he says, I am the Lord who declares the end from the beginning. My counsel will stand and I will establish and accomplish all my good pleasure. You see, it's the sovereign God who's providentially directing and working His will in human history. The living, eternal God existing in three persons. So to grasp our security, first of all, we understand that this is the God who is for us, always and in every circumstance. Who is He speaking to? Who are the us in the question there? Well, the book of Romans is kind of like a family letter. Paul has written to those who have expressed the obedience of faith, to use his phrase from Romans 1. Those who've come to understand that they're a part of those people that he describes in Romans 3, where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they understand that in God's grace and mercy, he's providing a sin-bearing substitute in his son. And they've put their faith and their trust in Christ. And therefore, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in a relationship with Christ Jesus. If you look even closer at the context here in Romans 8, 28, Paul says this. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. So the us of Romans 8, 31 and 32 are the same people he spoke to in Romans 8.28. As a matter of fact, John Piper says that this verse, Romans 8.31, is really just a restatement of what he said in verse 28 using different words. Now, it's easy to affirm that verse. We love to quote it. But Paul is using it here to help prepare us for difficulties ahead in verses 35 and 36. He knows that tribulation and peril are coming. But even with that, he asks the question then, who can be against us? To which my response is, are, are you kidding? Who can be against us? A lot can be against us. If you've been here over the last several weeks, Buster just finished a series on spiritual warfare. 
And he showed that lovely picture of the rope with the three cords coming together, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those are against us every day as we go out into spiritual warfare. These are powerful enemies. Well, in addition to that, he says Satan, the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Certainly he's against us. And that's before we talk about people that we work with, people that we know around the world. Christians are being falsely accused all the time. There are many who are against us. But Paul's point here is that if God is for us, no one can ultimately or successfully be against us. If Romans 8.28 is true... And what he says here in verse 31 and 32 is true. Then we know that God is working in and through all these things. As Christ followers, we believe that everything is ruled by the sovereign hand of God. And they are designed with a purpose in mind for us. So the question this morning is, do we really believe that? John Piper says in his, ver in his sermon on this verse, he said, we're really prone not to. And if you want proof, just look at the evidence in our own lives and the way we live. When things turn out cross to our purposes and what we want, how do we respond? Often we question or we grumble. We fret and we worry. So the question is, do we really believe that God is for us? In Psalm 56, we have the example of David and we see how he responds in a difficult situation. David's on the run for his life from King Saul. He's alone. He has no army. He has no friends. As a matter of fact, he's even fled the entire nation of Israel. He's hiding out in uh, Philistine territory, and he's pretending to be insane to hide his identity. David says there in Psalm 56 that his enemies are oppressing him. He's in dire straits. And yet three times in this psalm he declares, I will put my trust in you, O God. The question is why? Why would David put his trust in the Lord? And the answer is found in verse 9. This I know, God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in God I've put my trust, I will not be afraid for what can man do to me? David realizes that God is for him, and it assures him that God hasn't forgotten this situation. This situation has not caught God by surprise. It gives David confidence and a new perspective, and that's what Paul's trying to shape here. He's trying to shape our perspective to understand that God is a sovereign protector and that with him in that role, no opposition can overwhelm us. The next question Paul asks is found in verse 32 where he says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Here Paul is teaching us that God is our sovereign benefactor and therefore no good thing will be withheld from us. John Piper called this verse the most precious verse in the Bible. That's a powerful statement. Let's look and see why. The first thing to note here is how Paul highlights the costliness of our redemption. God did not spare his son, his own son, his only son. Why would he do that? Why would God allow his son to be put to death? Notice the wording carefully. The implication of the phrase is that God could have intervened, but he spared him. I believe that God did not spare his own son because it was the only way he could spare us. 
In Isaiah 53, the prophet gives us a dramatic picture that is a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross and its meaning. Man there is in dire straits. His position looks dark. He's oppressed by sin and guilt and therefore stands under divine judgment. But, but God sends a suffering servant to bear our sorrows, to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. You see, this not sparing his son is the only way that he could spare us. The next part of the verse brings into clearer focus exactly what Paul wants to communicate. He delivered him up for us all. Now stop right there and let's just think for a moment. Linger on this. This is the most decisive moment in human history. Here is where divine love for man and divine hatred for sin intersect. Absolute divine sovereignty and the eternal weight of human accountability meet right here. Infinite wisdom and almighty power gather together right here when God delivers His own Son for us. It's interesting to compare this statement with what the Bible says elsewhere. In the Gospels, the writers say that Judas delivered him over for money. They also say that Pilate delivered him over out of fear. In the book of Acts, Peter says that Herod and the Jews delivered Jesus over out of jealousy and hatred. In 1 Corinthians, it even says that we delivered him over. But behind this, ultimately, what Paul says is that God the Father delivered over the Son, and He did it out of love. Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, says this. He says, This man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but you nailed Him to the cross. What a miracle of providence that God can take the most evil and wicked actions of man ever done, the crucifixion of His perfect Son, and use them to accomplish redemption for His people. Now, if God can do that, certainly He can take the hard and difficult things in our lives and turn them for our good. John Murray has a beautiful quote about this in his commentary, and I want to share it with you. It is only as the ordeal of Gethsemane and Calvary is viewed in the perspective of damnation vicariously born. Stop there. That word vicariously means as our substitute. Jesus bore our damnation. Damnation executed with the sanctions of unrelenting justice. When we understand that, it's, it's only then that we're able to apprehend the wonder and taste the sweetness of love that passes knowledge. I love this phrase. Love eternally to be explored, but eternally inexhaustible. We will never fathom the depth of God's love that led Him to deliver His own Son for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that in this verse, we're face-to-face -face with the great mystery of the atonement. What really happened on the cross in order to provide our salvation? What happened was no accident. It was part of God's plan of salvation from the beginning. Such was God's love for us in that He demonstrated it while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Well, the second half of this verse completes Paul's argument, and Piper wrote a, cha- uh, wrote a chapter in his book, Future Grace, on this particular verse, Romans 8.32. He called it the solid logic of heaven. And the logic goes like this. Since God did not spare his own son, then surely he must with him freely give us all things. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the hard things to the easier things. You see, to hand over his beloved son was the incomparably hard thing for God to do. God had existed in eternal fellowship with his son. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He was perfect. And yet God delivered him over for us. It's the hardest thing God ever did. Surely after he's done that, giving us all things is easy in comparison. The hardest thing has been done. Well, what are some of these all things that God has given us? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. We're new creatures in Christ. We've been given spiritual life. It's been implanted in our hearts. In the doxology of uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Peter says, knowing this, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. We're the beneficiary of these unspeakable promises. John Flavel is one of my favorite Puritan writers. There's a quote from him in your bulletin. You might take a look there. Flavel says this about this verse. It's a little long, but bear with me. It's worth the thought. How is it imaginable that God should withhold, after this, anything from His people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, and glorify them eternally? How will he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, and deliver them? Surely if God would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he should ever after this deny or withhold from his people For whose sakes all this was suffered. Any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. You see, God is for us. He promises to work all things for our good. And here he promises to give us everything we need for life and godliness. If you believe that he gave Jesus to die for your sins, if you believe the gospel, you must believe this. This is really like the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament promise that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Whatever your circumstances are, God will freely give you everything you need to keep you, to hold you, and guide you until you see his face. Well, the next verse, verse 33, asks this question. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Here Paul reveals God as our sovereign defender, and therefore no accusation can ever disinherit us. Now let's think. Who can bring a charge against you? Well, just like in verse 31, things come quickly to mind. Certainly Satan is there. He's called the accuser of the brethren. 
He brings to mind countless times the places where I have failed and fallen short. But it's not just Satan, it's my own conscience. Um, Paul makes it clear that our conscience is there for a reason. It's to point out to us and help us understand the times where we leave undone the things we should have done or do those things we should not have done. Also, all you need to do is talk to those closest to you. I promise you, my wife could provide a list of certain things, that charges that might be brought against me um, over the years. Lots of people could accuse me, and apart from Christ, many of these accusations would certainly stand. But Paul denies emphatically that any of these lapses can affect our status before God. And the reason is simple. Almighty God is the final judge and jury, and nobody is in a position to get his verdict overturned. You see, the undeserved grace of God in this verse is that we can never successfully be charged with anything before Almighty God. Now, that's an amazing statement, but that's what Paul says here. He affirms God's sovereignty in judgment. Notice the second half of the verse, how he emphasizes and focuses on God. He says, God is the one who justifies. Now, now he could have just said, we're justified, and that would be true. That's enough, but that's not the focus. It is God who justifies. God, the maker and judge of all things, who reserves the right for, of judgment over his creatures. If you've put your trust in Christ as your sin-bearing substitute, then God has passed a judgment on you of not guilty. And get this, He did it in full view of your sins and shortcomings. God knew the worst things about you at the time when He accepted you for Jesus' sake. Ray Ortland asked this question in his book. He says, what sin does the cross fail to overrule? Obviously, the answer is none. God's verdict or judicial declaration is called justification. Justification, and this is in your bulletin, is an act of God by which he credits to the account of believers the perfect righteousness of Christ so that their sins are forgiven and they are considered perfectly righteous in his sight. This is important. To justify means more than just to forgive or pardon. It means that God has made a judicial declaration to the, effect that, to the effect that we're not just forgiven, but we are declared righteous as if we had never sinned. In chapter 3, Paul puts it this way, we are justified by grace, it's a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus because of His substitutionary death on the cross, in order that God might be just and the justifier of whom? of him who believes in Jesus. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. He says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is justification, and we cannot be de-justified. This doctrine of justification by faith is a source of great security and joy for the believer. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, In Christ, we are as righteous before God as Jesus is righteous. I, I find that hard to grasp. I find that hard to believe. 
But think about it. The only righteousness that we can have before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to which we contribute nothing. Ours is like filthy rags, the Bible says. But the righteousness of Christ is ours as a free gift by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By grace we've been saved through faith, and that is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of any of our works. Well, let's, let's stop here for just a minute and let's look at and see where Paul is in his argument. Where is he going? Well, he's piling up all these spectacular and breathtaking assurances, one on top of the other, grace upon grace, and why? Well, Paul wants us to be amazed. He wants us to be satisfied in the abundant grace of God and these massive promises for our security. But he writes this with an end in view. You see, Romans chapter 8 really ends the doctrinal section of Paul's argument. Verses, uh, chapters 9 through 11 are really a parenthesis, so the train of thought continues picking up in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And there, here's what Paul says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, what, what mercies is he talking about? He's talking about these mercies here in Romans 8, the fact that God has saved us freely by His grace that He promises to work all things together for our good, that He promises to keep us, that nothing can separate us from His love. He says, in light of this, in light of these mercies, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is the service you bring. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be different people. What type of life is he expecting in Romans 12? Well, he gives us an outline of some of those things. He says, first of all, let love be genuine. He says, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Use your gifts to serve the body of Christ. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Practice hospitality. Don't return evil for evil. Give to those in need. You see, Christianity has amazingly practical application for how we live, but it is based on amazingly profound theological truth. The purpose that Paul has here is not just to layer eternal security on top of all our other blessings as 21st century Americans. No, this security that Paul wants us to have here is a massive foundation underneath our faith so that when the storms of life come, we will be able to stand firm. Paul's final question is in verse 35 where he asks this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul wants us to understand here that God is our sovereign keeper and therefore... Nothing can separate us from His love. It is the decisiveness of His divine power and love that has settled our destiny forever. Um, You've got several sources listed in your bulletin. Um, And these are the things that really helped enliven my thinking about this sermon. The first one there is called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The last chapter of his book is called The Adequacy of God, and it's it's my favorite thing that I've read about Romans chapter 8, these verses. That's what it's about. Packer says this. I love this thought. Divine love is a function of omnipotence. Now, I don't tend to think of God's love in those terms. 
But that's how Packer says we should think of it. It's a function of God's power, His omnipotent power. And it has at its heart an almighty purpose to bless that cannot be thwarted. God says His purpose will stand. He will accomplish all His good pleasure. This sovereign resolve of God's love is referred to in this passage two ways. First of all, is the love of Christ. Secondly, as the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. This is the same love that foreknows us, that chooses us, that calls us, justifies us, and glorifies us. It's the love that's found only for those who trust in Christ. The Christian's privilege is to know for certain that God loves him immutably with an everlasting love. Well, these verses are the grand climax of this marvelous chapter, really the whole first half of the book. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the love of Christ in this chapter as a magnet. I I almost went to Walmart last night and bought a magnet, but I just didn't. So just picture a big magnet here that grasps you and holds you there. He says that's what the love of Christ is like. It's like a magnet that's taken hold of you. And you see, that love, that magnetic love, is the key to our security as believers. It doesn't depend on our love for Christ, which John Stott describes as fickle, frail, and faltering. And I would say, yes, that's pretty descriptive of me. No, it depends on the love of Christ for us, which is eternal, faithful, and persevering. The love of Christ here is is described as an objective reality. And it's expressed in history on the cross where Christ was delivered over for us. It's verified by the resurrection. And it continues with His intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Yet many Christians live at a great distance from a felt experience of this love. There was an article uh, on the Gospel Coalition website recently by a man named Colin Smith. I don't really know anything about him, but this is what he said. He said, there are millions of people who have faith to believe that Jesus died and rose. But they have little to no living experience of God's love. Jonathan Edwards uses an analogy to describe this problem. He says, there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. What about you this morning? You see, Paul doesn't want our understanding of the love of God to just be a memory of something that happened 2,000 years ago. He wants it to be a present reality in our own lives. I heard a song this week, new song by Need to Breathe, a contemporary Christian group. And I love the first line of this song. It says, your love is like radiant diamonds bursting inside us we cannot contain. That's the experience I want. I want the love of God to be like radiating out of my heart, bursting forth. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 4, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to pour out this love in our heart. Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. He says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth 
and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wants us to experience that love because He knows we're going to need it. He knows because verse 35 and 36 outline some of those life experiences that just might separate someone from the love of God. You see, Paul is fully aware of the insecurity and uncertainty that we face. It's written across human experience. Paul doesn't downplay it. He anticipates it. Here's what he says in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword? Paul makes clear in these verses that the omnipotent, effective, and protecting love of God does not spare us from these calamities. But it will certainly bring us safely through them to everlasting joy. In the unscrutable wisdom of God, the experience of this love does not always rescue us from peril and calamity. But it promises to preserve us finally for eternity in His presence. Ray Ortland says this, It's certainty in the love of God is how the gospel makes heroes out of ordinary sinners. We move forward not as victims of these things, but as victors. Because everything happened, happening to you and me, while not necessarily good in itself, is working for our good because it's guided by the love of God for us. The promise here is not for an escape from these hardships, but that the love and power of God will triumph in and through them. So, Paul's design here in this chapter is to give you and me such a deep and unshakable, God-wrought, blood-bought security in His all-conquering love that even in all these kinds of circumstances, you will not forsake Him, but you will trust Him. You will hold fast to Him, and you will be satisfied in Him, even when everything else may be taken away. The goal of this passage is to assure our eternal security even in the midst of many sufferings and hardships. How will you respond when you lose your job? How will you respond to financial difficulty? Or when cancer strikes you or your family? Or when your marriage is on the rocks or your children rebel? Or when death comes to a loved one? Romans 8 is about God in Christ giving us massive security for a life of merciful service even through many sufferings. God's pledge is not that suffering will not afflict us, but that it will never separate us from His love. Well, the last thing I want to share is a quote that's in the bulletin there. I, I thought it was pretty profound. Ray Ortland, in his book on Romans 8, he says these things a little different way, but he's making the same points. You can follow along there. It says, God, in this passage, we see that He sticks up for us, I think I, I think actually, I have. Here we go. God sticks up for us. That is, He's our sovereign protector. He provides for us as our sovereign benefactor. He justifies us. He's our defender, and God loves us. He's our keeper. God's love is loyal, generous, just, and eternal. 
God fights for us. God gives to us. He defends us and He cares for us no matter what happened. He's for us in friendship. He is over us in provision. He is around us in protection. And He is with us in preservation. Behold, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love of God for us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we don't want to just know about this love. We don't want to just hear about this love. We want to experience this love. We pray that your Holy Spirit would pour out your love within our hearts and that that love would overflow to a life of merciful service even in the midst of the hardships we face in this life. Amen and amen.